0: Fora TV podcasts are brought to you by the Wellness Channel, sponsored by Pfizer at Fora.tv slash wellness.
1: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation, and welcome to, I guess it's our third or fourth sort of debate. Um, Most of you are familiar with the introduction cards, so I don't have to say much about the speakers. Uh, On the back is where you participate, write very legible versions of of what question you might have because Kevin Kelly will be up here uh, looking at the questions and trying to read them in the dark. He'll pass the good ones up to me, and I'll uh, hit these guys with some of the best. I was at Stanford 50 years ago in the biology department, we did not have a department of (laughs) bioengineering. And it would have been unimaginable, even though molecular biology was just getting cranked up at that point. This is a technology that's growing about as fast as microbes do. That is more with greater exponential speed than information technology has. We're now at a point similar to when microcomputers began to replace uh, the mainframes and the mini computers. And the making of the technology left the universities in the government labs, and went into garages. So we're now getting garage biotechnology. And one assumes, well, what does that mean? There must be some good news and some bad news in that, and how do we tell the difference? Tonight, we'll use our debate format, which is... um, doesn't have winners and losers, it has probers in both directions. Uh, Previously, we've asked the audience to suggest who goes first, but tonight, we really need a grounding of what synthetic biology is, so we're gonna ask Drew Endy to go first, and the format is, he speaks and shows slides for 15 minutes, then the three of us sit down up here, and Jim Thomas interviews Drew to draw out more Background, fill, data, all the stuff a good interviewer does. And to show that he's paying attention, when he finishes that 10 minute interview, he has to summarize Drew's argument to Drew's satisfaction, where Drew says, That's it, you got it. Then they reverse roles. And Jim Thomas from the Etc. group comes up and does his 15 minutes and then sits down and is probed for 10 minutes by Drew. And that Drew has to give his position to the point that Jim agrees, that's right, you got it. And then we're into more free-form interaction, your questions, and so on. Let's start with Drew Indy.
2: So my remarks will start with what I want to do, Uh, second, why I want to do it, third, what's happening uh, with respect to the wet technology, uh, some of the issues that come up, a proposal, and that'll be it. Uh, What I want to do, I'd like to develop tools that make biology easy to engineer. Uh, By biology, I mean the stuff of life, so little bacteria that swim around, make chemicals, perhaps someday go into your body and fix stuff up. I also mean the stuff of life like this, uh, larger objects, mammals, what have you, bring them back, change them. And then once we get all that working, maybe other things too, although that might be more than 10 or 20 years from now. So spaceships that self-assemble ecosystems or uh, Trey Parker's uh, polygluteal uh, monkeys. (laughs) In other words, uh, how do we take this material, uh, the one part of nature for which engineering, as Stuart mentioned, has not really yet been well-developed and turn it into an engineerable substrate? such that were it ever possible to make gigantic programmable gourds that differentiate into four-bedroom, two-bath houses, we could do that. These are ideas, obviously, and it's not clear that the substrate of biology is a physical material, chemical material, will support all of this, but one can imagine. What do I want to do? Part two, tools that enable humanity. It seems to be irresponsible to set out to rebuild the living world if it were Uh, without also understanding who we are and what we intend to do with that capability. So, for example, tools that support conversation. This is a slide of a website from Paul Rabinow's group at Berkeley trying to bring people together to talk about some of the issues with making biology easier to engineer. Tools that enable the sharing of wisdom. So if we have tens of thousands of years with biology as a tool for us as a source of food, how do we take advantage of that or at least continue to recognize and celebrate that. Tools for building a community. So if this is a photograph of students from Lincoln High School here in San Francisco working at UCSF. I was a teenage genetic engineer last summer, they say. Is that good or bad? And how do we give these students a future that they can build for themselves where they can take responsibility for the direct manipulation of genetic material? Tools for safety. If this is the Subway newspaper from 30 years ago in Boston where they were publishing recipes for how to clone a toxin in your kitchen, is that a good or bad thing to do? Uh, How come people didn't come forward doing this or did they kill themselves trying so we didn't hear about them? Tools for security. If this is a publicly accessible sequence for a genome that happens to encode hemorrhagic fever like Ebola and you could each download it from the Internet and purchase the DNA encoding it for $20,000... Do we secure a world based on biology in which that's possible or not? Tools that enable beauty, beauty both human-constructed and inspired by what we see in nature. So those are two things that I'm arguing for, tools that make biology easier to engineer and tools that enable humanity. Why do I want to do this? One, to understand. You can take apart a car in order to understand a car, and that gives you some sort of understanding. But then if you take the pieces as they're scattered about your driveway and attempt to put them back together, you might have a couple pieces left over. You'll have an aha moment when you turn the key. And it might work or it might not. Basically, in biology, in its modern era, over the last 70 years, we've inherited a reductionist approach driven by physicists starting around 1930. And this became molecular biology and genetics. We've gotten really, really good at taking natural biological systems pulling them apart, studying their individual components, reading out their DNA. But we don't actually understand how all those components yet go back together. So one of the real reasons I'd like to do this is to understand, learning by building. And just as an example of how bad we are in terms of understanding natural biological systems, I'll show you this little movie. Uh, That's a research project. It'll be published from my lab. These are a movie of bacteria, E. coli, growing and dividing, And all the cells have been infected, excuse me, two of the cells have been infected with a virus, and they'll turn green, the two infected cells. And you'll see one of the cells popped. The virus is so tiny you can't see it, but you can see it destroys the cell. And the other cell just keeps growing and dividing. This is for a virus that was first isolated from nature in the 1950s. Its genome was read out, 48,502 base pairs in the 1980s. So if you've heard of the company 23andMe for studying human DNA, you could have had a company for this virus back in the the Reagan years. We have no idea why one cell will pop and the other cell will continue to survive. We have some stories, but no biophysical models. So by learning how to put these things back together, by taking the pieces as the biologists have described them, as these little entities and trying to reassemble them, we might learn that are models of how these things are actually parts, though they're not quite parts like we think they are. Another reason I'm excited and I'm arguing for getting better at engineering biology, uh, developing tools that support that, and tools that support humanity, is to enable what I'll call sustainable agility, as well as artistry, and that might not be the right word, I might mean just simply beauty. In terms of sustainable agility, Folks might have seen this before. This is a comparison of before and after corn or maize. Uh, On the left, you see corn prior to domestication. And then on the right, something that's more familiar. If you look at the foods that we eat, uh, we eat very few of the things that are edible uh, so far as plants are concerned. And so one thing I might uh, hope for for the future is agility with respect to domesticating or whatever the equivalent is, different crops, both as the environment exists today and perhaps in a changing environment. Toolkit. So what are some of the technologies that exist today? Well, to put this in context, we've lived in a world where for the last human generation, the last 35 years, there's been, since the invention of recombinant DNA, uh, the birth of the modern biotechnology industry, companies like Genentech here in the San Francisco area. And these are the tools, if you will, of genetic engineering, some of the most basic tools. Recombinant DNA lets you take two existing pieces of DNA and cut and paste them, making a new molecule that might do something useful, such as produce insulin in bacteria, so you get that drug more reliably in service of treating diabetes. Polymerase chain reaction, the second old tool, lets you take a single molecule of DNA and make many, many copies of it, so it's more easy to do stuff. And then sequencing of DNA lets you take a molecule and then read it out, getting access to the information. These are not the only tools that can power uh, the engineering of biology. And much of what I view synthetic biology to be about is the invention and implementation of new tools. So, for example, construction of DNA. Rather than manually manipulating DNA with enzymes, let me just have it constructed to order. Biology is oftentimes very complex. Maybe I can abstract it and simplify it. I'll give you examples of four and five. And then this turns out to be a very radical idea. Maybe we could standardize biology so that the component tree can be reused more easily. Here's some specific examples. So DNA construction. It turns out that back in 1982, chemists working in Colorado more or less perfected at the time a chemistry called phosphoramidite chemistry. And what this means is you can buy in jars chemicals today which are derived from sugarcane And these chemicals end up being the four bases of DNA, or phosphoramidites, in a form that can be uh, readily assembled. So four of these bottles up at the top here, one would be a bottle of A, T, C, and G, and so on. And you hook these bottles up to a machine. Into the machine comes information from a computer, a sequence of DNA, T, A, A, T, A, whatever you'd like to build. And that machine will stitch the genetic material together from scratch. So if you've ever seen Star Trek, where they have the food replicating system. And, you know, I'd like a pumpkin spiced mocha or a latte or something, and you can compile that from the warp energy drive, or I don't know exactly how it works. Uh, DNA synthesis is the equivalent technology. You take information and material and you compile, you take information and the raw chemicals, you compile genetic material. It's, practically speaking, the coolest, most impressive slash scary technology I've encountered. DNA is complicated, so if we were to do all our genetic engineering at this level of resolution, GA, it would become tedious, uh, if not um, unreliable. It would be akin, perhaps, uh, the analogy is not perfect, uh, perhaps like programming a computer in machine language. At some point, uh, it might be good to know how to do that, but oftentimes people would like to program at a higher level. And so some of these ideas like abstraction of genetic componentry involves the idea of taking these different layers of function, the DNA layer, and putting on top of that a parts layer. where We could call genetic objects that just do something and you don't have to know all of the sequence information. And then we might be able to build still higher level functional objects like a device that could receive or send information or smell like bananas or make a balloon. And then maybe we could have a system uh, makes a drug, swims around, finds a tumor and attacks it, who knows. If we could pull this off, what we'd end up with is a future in which some people could um, become expert systems engineers in biology. They could start to design and build organisms, and they wouldn't actually need to know, down at the bottom, that DNA was made up of four bases, let alone anything about the phosphoramidite chemistry. They would compile down via tools to the sequence level, ship that information over, somebody would print the DNA, they'd get their DNA program back, they'd run it turns out we're working on this. Uh, There's a registry of standard biological parts at this website. Today, you can get 3,500 biobrick DNA parts. They're freely available if you work at a research university. That's simply because the legal system uh, requires uh, we distribute these parts under what's known as the research exemption. This collection of parts is growing geometrically. So two months ago, it was 2,000 parts. We just had students come in with 1,500 more. Students do things like this, Uh, showing up in the lab dissatisfied with the bouquet of E. coli, how it smells. They decide to reprogram its stench. If the cell is growing, smell like wintergreen, otherwise print banana smell. You could find a part that they made, J45200, there's a DNA sequence. Uh, When you put that sequence of DNA into a bacteria, it smells like bananas. They were sufficiently accomplished as teenagers, first and second year undergraduates, that they went live after a couple months with a smell test demo. Now along with this set of tools like parts and standardization, we're seeing if I come back to the construction business of DNA, uh, also a geometric increase in the pace or capability of DNA synthesis. So, This is a paper uh, published within the last year where folks are building from those raw chemicals from scratch a piece of DNA almost 600,000 base pairs long the length of a small bacterial genome. In fact, the biggest projects I've seen to date have assembled pieces of DNA that are almost 10 million base pairs long, uh, almost the size of the genome of baker's yeast. Limits. There's going to be some interesting limits. One, uh, to look ahead to Saul Griffith's talk from January, probably comes from energy, energy. Saul here is very concerned about uh, human civilization and where we produce our energy and whether or not we'll be able to transition to something that's sustainable, renewable. It turns out that biology, as a thing on our planet, doesn't have access to that much energy. He estimates it might be half a terawatt out of a civilization, our civilization, that's running on 15 or 18 terawatts. Maybe he's wrong by a factor of 10, and biology really can get access to 5 terawatts it's still not gonna be an excess of energy via biology. So if you hear about biofuels right now, biofuels won't solve our entire energy problem. And because there's a limitation there, it's gonna put tremendous pressure, as I hope we hear about, on our land use and so on. Security, as I alluded to via the Ebola sequence on the screen, is a huge issue. And since the anthrax attacks in our country back in 2001, we've spent over $60 billion in the name of biosecurity. This has largely resulted in a reestablishment of classified biosafety level 4 facilities. BL4 facilities are facilities working on the most dangerous pathogens. Ironically, the FBI uh, claimed to have traced the anthrax attacks back to the very facility shown here. Then we again come back to the issues of communities, and can our generation going forward and beyond bring together what might seem like polar opposites? On the left, you see the iGEM community. This is the genetic engineering Olympic students, doubling in number practically every year. On the right, people who are dissatisfied or actively against the deployment of genetic engineering. I have some proposals to consider, and I'll quickly show them here. Should teenagers practice genetic engineering? Yes. Should military force include biotech? No. Will biohackers be good or bad? They'll be good if we encourage them and celebrate them. Should the parts be patented or shared? They should be free, but maybe we have some interesting terms and conditions to discuss. And should genetic engineers sign their work? Yes. Last slide, I'm arguing for the development of tools that make biology easy to engineer. In parallel, I am arguing that we also develop tools that enable our humanity as we take biotechnology forward. Thanks very much.
1: Outstanding. All right. Is everybody's mics working?
0: Hello, hello. Yep. Yep. Great. Great. Thank you very much, Drew. And thank you, everyone, for coming out on a Monday evening. It's really appreciated. Um, and as always, it's, it's great to hear a very reflective technologist. Um, may there be many more like you. Um, you... Began your list of questions at the end there, and I'll start there by saying Should teenagers practice genetic engineering? Yeah. And you think they should. Yeah. Who should and shouldn't? Who else? Is, was there a limit to who should use these tools, and what would that be? I think so long as somebody is disposed to be
2: constructive, right? And I might even go further than that and say so long as somebody is not disposed to be destructive, right? That would be the initial set, right? And then I'd, I'd open that up for, for wiser consideration but I don't know that I would wanna preclude access uh, to these technologies. It seems my gut tells me that uh, many of the technologies around biology have been not officially locked up but hard to get access to. And I think uh, it's ironic that some of the difficulty in getting access to the technology comes out of the conversations of three decades ago where issues of safety uh, drove a very, very strong institutional oversight framework to come into existence. Uh, many of those safety concerns were well founded, uh, but as a cost associated with that, we now live in a world where most people don 't feel comfortable talking about DNA or genetic engineering. Uh, most people presume that all of the work is dangerous um, and you know that 's what we inherit. If I look forward, you know there, there are much more serious dangers i 'd get freaked out about with respect to a future where a small number of people have access to Matter compilers for genetic material. Imagine if only one or two organizations in the world have access to that technology. Um, it's much more exciting for me to imagine a world where anybody who might usefully deploy biotechnology for a local situation has access to the tools, has access to the know-how, and, and can do it. Now, that might be a fa- fantasy from any number of perspectives, but that's, that's my starting response.
0: Okay. And specifically, then, you go on to say that... Uh Your concern, if I get this right, that the military has access to this technology. Um, What would you do about that?
2: Matt Mestelson from Cambridge, Massachusetts, a generation before, uh, was part of a group who argued successfully that um, the military, the US government, should stand down its offensive biological weapons program, as I understand it, having inherited literally. Uh, not being alive at the time, that, that, that world. And so uh, the arguments, as I remember uh, having learned them, that they made were, uh, geez, we already have weapons. Uh, two, uh, we can't really control biological weapons. And three, you know, other people could develop them and there's not limited access to, say, nuclear material with biology. Biology's everywhere, so we can't sort of lock up the raw materials. So they have no strategic value for us. And those, those rational, reasoned arguments carried the day during the Nixon administration. Um, I wonder to what extent we're seeing today perhaps a relaxing on some of those reasons. Maybe we're getting better at controlling biology, uh, and so we'd wanna be vigilant, uh, if you will, to, to pay attention to the debasement of any of those reasons. Um, but another thing, at, at least in the United States, has been a very, very strong immune response around biosecurity from the anthrax attacks in the fall of 01. Um, So. I'd like to just at least hold the line around some of Messelson's arguments. Go back and read Scientific American from, from that point in time, you'll see, hey, we should not have classified biosafety level four facilities. Let's do this in the open if we're going to do anything.
0: So a lot of the, um, the argumentation for, for, for developing, for example, the uh, 1918 flu virus was synthesized a few years ago yeah. using synthetic biology. There's a virus that killed 50 million people in the last century. Yeah. Um, the argumentation was that it was in order to defend against uh, pandemics of flu that are still to come. Do you accept that, that that's non-military, or would you consider that military? That work was
2: done at the CDC. It was done in public. There was debate within the research community as to whether or not the sequence information for that uh, 1918 flu should be made public. Uh, Not all the researchers agreed. It was made public. It was reviewed by the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity before it was published. Uh, And the scientific community rallied behind that. The arguments basically being made were of the form no disease has been cured in secret and we we have to keep this stuff in the open. Others, uh, notable around this part of the world, uh, Bill Joy and Ray Kurzweil, had a nice editorial in the New York Times saying this was the most irresponsible thing they'd encountered. I think the scientific community would point to the subsequent work and say, it was good to have that information out there. We've understood a little bit more about the evolution of the flu. uh, And it's not something that should be done without
0: concern for safety issues, but it was the right thing to do. So you you talked about... um Agility. Uh, You talked about understanding nature. I mean, another reason that you appear to be involved with synthetic biology is that you're actually a founder and on the board of a commercial company using synthetic biology. Mm -hmm. What's the role of commerce in understanding nature and building agility?
2: That's a great question. Um, I was attracted to being involved with a company uh, because one of the core technologies in synthetic biology, DNA synthesis, uh, has little or no public support. And so... If you wanted to get better at that technology, uh, when the commercial sector, the investment uh, sources came up and said, we're willing to help with this, now that was an eye opener for me. I've seen the strengths and weaknesses of what you can do in the commercial sector. It's surprising to me that there is not uh, uh, public recognition of the importance of DNA synthesis technology and how the public probably wants to consider having an active voice in seeing this technology develop, so it has a say in how it's deployed.
0: And I was, I was really taken by um, one of your last slides, when, well, early on, later on, when you were talking about agility, and creating agility. What you showed was Tia the original um, in ancestor for maize, and then he shows the maize plant. Well, there's a plant that was developed through open source means, sure, yeah. um, without genetic engineering. Um, and so that seems to be an argument for agility without biotech, doesn't it?
2: Well, I'd argue that maize is a biotechnology. It's a biotechnology developed by particular methods over a particular period of time. By agility, I mean to the extent that it's possible, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to recognize what's research and what's ready to be commercialized. Um, to the extent that it's possible, if we needed to do that faster, not waiting for many, many, many generations, I'd like to have that
0: uh, capability, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you're you're very closely identified with open source biotechnology. Trying to uh, to make sure that as this, this moves ahead, it's shared. Um, but th- there have been people on this stage, I think, who who uh, are pushing for patents in this area. How do you defend against that? How do you defend against patents? I'd rather avoid that question and
2: and and ask answer a related question, just to be honest, which is how do you develop an open technology platform? And you develop an open technology platform, so far as I can figure, by doing two things. One, you build a community, and two, you protect against encumbrance of reuse and combination, meaning when you take any two things and give them away, somebody else could take those two things, put them together, and say, oh, this is mine. So how do you do those two things? And in biotechnology, patents are the dominant form of protecting against encumbrance of reuse and combination we can't afford it. With another 1,500 parts coming into the collection, that's $30 million in patent fees. And if you were to give me $30 million bucks, I'd go make more parts. And uh, practically then, what that means is we have to build a community that grows faster and can out-innovate trolls who will inevitably come around the periphery. There's some other things we can do. Um, we can talk about that in more detail. So, so I'm not for or against patents, but I think you know patents, per se, have a cost associated with them and they have a time constant associated with them. They have a lag and that makes them exclusive. And so uh, I think a lot of the innovation and pacing of innovation in biotech uh, and, and, and the good that can come from it would be better realized by having complementary frameworks that might operate on shorter time scales or have lower transaction costs.
0: So patents have a cost but they also have a very clear opportunity which is why people take them out. Uh, a number of the parts in the biobricks uh, are actually patented. So do you not see a situation where this is just going to get subverted? Most
2: pieces of DNA on the planet have not been patented. The uses of fragments of DNA, there are a great number of patents in the United States and in Japan and fewer elsewhere. So with respect to the Biobricks collection, our challenge right now is to take something which is openly distributed within a research community, so researchers at universities can use stuff you know, uh, under what's called the research exemption, how do we make that accessible to people within the commercial space or outside the research community? Uh, So we're doing okay now, but we need to basically extend our community and figure out how to do that. So we're working on an agreement uh, with lawyers and hope to have that ready for public
0: comment. But it is a tricky problem for us. Mm -hmm. Great. Time up, I hear. So, um, you know, what I heard very clearly, and you said it a number of times, was you're interested in making biology easier to engineer. Um, And it sounds like you don't really want to put any limits on that, on who uses it, who can engineer it. You want that to be a generally available platform. And you want to uh, supplement that um, with tools that would allow humanity to behave uh, more wisely, or something like that. Tools for humanity, I think, is how you put it. And your reasons for this um, is that by rebuilding nature from from this fundamental place that you want to understand how nature works better. It's a building by understanding. Um, and that you had an argument around uh, what you called agility, that, that having more technological tools in our toolbox means that we can deal with some of the great pressures that are coming down the pike, whether that's climate change um, or hunger in the case of food. Um, and then you, know, you, you talked about some of the limits that you do see in this field are some of the challenges, and those challenges included, you know, that we have limits on energy use that mean that this probably isn't the appropriate way to go about um, answering energy concerns with biofuels. Um, and uh, that uh, you were concerned certainly about the military use of this technology, and you had other questions about should teenagers use this, and you thought they should, and, uh, and you had some concerns about the intellectual property framework and you feel it should be as free and open as possible. Is that kind of everything? What did he leave out?
2: That's 93% <laughs> correct. That's uh, terrific actually. I um, uh, would not like to enable people who actively seek to cause harm with the technology. So whether it's a nation, call it the military of a nation, whether it's an organization or an individual, uh, criminal.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, not a hacker, but a criminal. Um, I guess I would emphasize, just complimenting what you said, that it's very hard to look ahead on some of this technology given the geometric increase in some of the capabilities. So sequencing and synthesis both, but synthesis in particular as a technology is getting better year after year after year, um, much like computers are if you're familiar with Moore's Law. Um, and so little bits of uncertainty projecting along those exponentials Lead to interesting futures. Um, but I think no matter what, things are likely to happen pretty quickly. Yeah. So maybe just to complement what you said, add that. There's a speed. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Jim, you're on. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Jim.
0: <clears throat> so um, thank you, Drew, and to Stuart and the long now. Um, my colleague, Pat Mooney, who's lived a much longer now than I have, reckons that it takes roughly a human generation to understand the impacts of our technology, and I think he's probably being a bit short on that. I think it's something more like a, a human lifetime. Um, so I'm not really expecting we're going to get a very clear reading on synthetic biology tonight or anytime soon. But I am going to argue that that lag between deploying our technologies and understanding our technologies is a good reason why we should be supplementing the art of the long view with... Th- policy of the long path, by which I mean the deliberate, careful path of precaution. Um, And I note that I've been uh, billed as a historian tonight, and that's uh, big shoes to fill, um, especially as I bunked off most of my history degree doing direct action. Um, But I'm going to try and not disappoint and to bring at least a few lessons from history, um, particularly lessons from the closest parallel that I can find, which is the synthetic chemical industry. And apart from the name and the fact that DNA synthesis is a chemistry technique, um, what these two two fields share is they're both about building, synthesizing nature from standard molecular parts. Um, And indeed, the early um, chemists believed that they could uh, understand nature better by building it, just as Drew does. Um, But I think the parallel that we're looking at right now with synthetic biology is the mid-19th century, when the synthetic chemists began to commercialize their field. And I just want to quickly show you how parallel those two moments are. So if you go back to 1856, uh, this was the time when a teenager in East London called William Henry Perkin, who was supposed to be synthesizing an anti-malarial drug, quinine, ended up synthesizing a, a, a synthetic dye, uh, movine. And realizing this was a red-hot commercial prospect, he uh, commercialized it and a bunch of French... Um, German and uh, Swiss entrepreneurs, the sort of mid-19th century equivalent of Craig Venter or uh, Binard Kosler, copied his, uh, his business uh, model, and they, they also started producing synthetic dyes. And on the back of this synthetic dye industry, the modern chemical industry was born. Well, you zip forward 150 years, and just across the bay, Jay Kiesling is also trying to synthesize an anti-malarial compound, this time artemisinin, using biology, and he finds out that he can synthesize gasoline, he sets up a biofuels business, and people like Vinod Kosler and Craig Venter copy the idea. And uh, before you know it, you have a booming synthetic life industry. And what's interesting is that this new synthetic life industry is following some of the same questions that the synthetic chemists faced 150 years ago. So, here's uh, Drew dealing with questions about monopoly, and I hope you don't mind, but I think they're very 19th century view of monopoly that you have. Um, In the middle of the 19th century, you had a a booming open source movement um, and a rollback of the patent movement, of of the patent laws, um, that that really allowed the industry to take off. Um, Within a very short time, however, that itself had been rolled back. In the mid-1970s, a bunch of uh, German companies lobbied for a strong patent law. Um, They used that to build a very strong monopoly, which by 1925 was uh, IG Farben, the fourth largest monopoly in the world. And since that time, the chemical industry has been a highly concentrated and highly powerful industry right through to now. And if you look at BASF, which is uh, one of those original companies, um, it's now the largest chemical company. It's uh, also got a $1.5 billion agreement with Monsanto on GMO seeds, and it's positioned itself at the head of the pack on nanotechnology. So we're moved, in that case, from monopoly to oligopoly. And I think we're going to see this, exactly this, with synthetic biology. Um, That while there's an attempt to build a commons, we're already seeing patents being placed, being written by people like Craig Venter and DuPont, which are being set to crowd out the commons and, and establish a monopoly position. There is going to be a microbe soft of synthetic biology. And uh, I I salute the attempts to to kick against that, but I think history is on the side of Craig Venter on this one. Andrew is concerned about militarization, and rightly so. You go back to the history of synthetic chemistry, back in the 1850s you had people like Lionel Playfair, a British chemist, saying that you could use chemistry in the Crimean War for for, for chemical weapons, and uh, this, this caused a real stir. We had uh, at least two treaties trying to ban chemical weapons, but by the time the First World War came around, uh, both the Allies and the Germans were releasing synthetic chlorine into the wind to try and gas their opponents. Two decades later, IG Farben, BASF again, was, uh, was supplying Zyklon B into the gas chambers at Auschwitz. Now, if you'd said to the uh, founders of BASF in the 1860s that their facilities would be used... to to carry out mass murder by their own government, they would have said that was an extreme and improbable thing. But um, the balance of probability changed very quickly across one human lifetime. And uh, I really do think that it's a a mistake to think that with synthetic biology, where we already have had agents built that can kill 50 million people, as it did last last, uh, century in the case of 1918 flu virus, that you can on the one hand uh, restrain the hostile uses of this technology and on the other hand have a booming industry. Um, that really is a fairy tale that high tech companies and high tech industries tell their population to try and make them sleep better at night. Um, I think if Drew is serious about disarming the future, you have to realize that the existence of an industry uh, uh, and a capac- industrial capacity means that they will be commandeered in wartime by states, even states that you think you trust. and. Uh, the the way to disarm the future is to disarm the uh, large-scale commercial production of anything using synthetic biology. And I think thirdly, looking back to the chemical industry, there's a clear lesson on economic disruption. Um, You didn't have to wait for uh, soldiers to be killed on the battlefield before there were already economic deaths on the agricultural fields of Turkey, of Mexico, and of India. Um, That in fact, those who grew the natural dyes for the the dye-stuffs industry, saw the uh, emergence of a synthetic dye-stuffs industry back in the 1860s as an attack on first their livelihoods and later their lives. Um, So in 1897, BASF and Bayer had a synthetic indigo dye, blue, um, which uh, led to the collapse of indigo growing in in Bengal. 75% of the the area planted to indigo collapsed uh, within a decade. And then when famine came along, um, was unemployed. millions of unemployed growers ended up uh, dead. And those are just the sort of first canaries in the coal mine we've first seen wave after wave of synthetic products made by chemistry, putting out of work rubber tappers and uh, cotton producers and, and so forth. But I think synthetic biology is probably going to outdo all of that. Um, I mentioned already Jay Kiesling, which is one of Drew's colleagues, um, and he has a project to working with Sanofia Ventus to replace uh, Artemisia, which is usually grown by thousands of small farmers in East Africa and Southeast Asia, um, and basically to undercut them and put them out of business. Um, but it goes further. When I spoke with Jake Heesling recently, he told me that as far as he was concerned, synthetic biology meant that anything that can be made from a plant can now be made by a microbe in a vat. Think about that. Anything that can be made from a plant can now be made by a microbe in a vat. A statement like that, if it's true, is the death knell for economies that depend on plant-derived commodities, whether that's tropical oils or fibers or rubber or uh, plant extracts for pharmaceuticals and flavorings and so forth. Um, What Jay Kiesling's statement means is that for the customers of those commodity-dependent countries, which are usually the poorest countries in the world, they can now dangle the carrots or the concern of synthetic biology and then renegotiate costs, they can renegotiate trade deals, they can switch to microbial synthesis and leave whole nations up in the air, um, potentially to spiral into hunger, violence, and unrest. So monopoly, militarization, massive economic destruction, three things that we can already see from the beginning of this and the last synthetic industry. But the real doozy with synthetic chemistry came a full century later, and that's in 1962 when Rachel Carson published Silent Spring and drew back the curtain on a host of unexpected toxicities of what was thought to be the good side of synthetic chemistry, the pesticides, the paints, the fertilizers, the refrigerants, and so forth, the whole better living through chemistry package. And for showing that tremendous cost that those benefits were paid for by, she uh, was called emotional, unscientific, she was called a fearmonger. monger all these sort of labels that today get put on people who are critical of biotechnology. Um, but she really didn't even have a part of it. Some years after Rachel Carson's death, Drew and I are now part of a generation with the lowest sperm count in history, under a, a depleted ozone layer, and every night my wife feeds my child breast milk with persistent organic pollutants in. And we're the privileged ones. For communities of color and poor communities in the shadow of chemical facilities, the attack of the synthetic chemical industry on their lives and their health is something more like a slow genocide. Which is not to say synthetic biology is going to be toxic, but it is to say we need to properly weigh that which we do not know, and we need to take it extremely serious, and that's been discussed on this stage before. It's the uh, black swan that Nassim Taleb talks about, or Paul Sappho's cone of uncertainty. In the case of synthetic biology, we already have significant questions over some of the assumptions underlying uh, the notion that DNA is a code that can be programmed and is heritable and so forth. Um, But if you have those questions, we shouldn't be moving into commercial use. Um, And that's why civil society generally calls for a very strong use of the precautionary principle in this case, and maybe we can discuss that more. I want to end with three... Mistakes that I see looming in the longer term for synthetic biology to open up our questions. First, the discussion so far is just about microbes. And we're soon going to see synthesis of plants, of animals, and and certainly of human beings. And we should think what that means. Secondly, we absolutely mustn't try and treat synthetic biology with the same set of regulatory and governance tools that we use for genetically modified organisms. They are different quantitatively and qualitatively. Um, qualitatively, you're not talking about a small piece of DNA taken from somewhere in nature and then put into a genome that you mostly already have existing in nature. To, to try and understand the biosafety of that, um, countries use something called substantial equivalence. It's a kind of pseudo-scientific biosafety tool. It doesn't work well with GMOs. It absolutely won't work with synthetic biology, where you're going to be designing entirely novel sequences of DNA and increasingly putting it into an entirely novel genome. So we don't yet have any models, predictive models for working out the biosafety of these synthetic organisms. And I I think that's going to be a black hole into which this whole field is going to get sucked. Um, Quantitatively, it's different, too. If Drew's successful at making biology easier to engineer, such that anybody, teenagers or whatever, can can do this, we're going to see a massive increase in the number of engineered organisms entering the biosphere. Um, I discovered there's an amazing job that somebody has here in the Bay Area, which is from NASA. Um, there's the uh, Planetary Protection Officer, which I think has got to be the coolest job there is. <laughs> and apparently her job is to make sure that no alien life forms get into the biosphere. Well, I think she's looking at the wrong place. Um, I think she should be checking out the synthetic biology labs, and particularly the synthetic biology labs of J. Craig Venter, who claims in his patents and in his public pronouncements that he has a method of making millions of new species every day. Think about that. Millions of new species every day. I mean, what does that mean? It means probably that Kevin Kelly's uh, all-species directory is going to have to go find a whole lot more storage, and it means that the taxonomists are not going to be asleep for the next 100 years. but what does that mean for the biosphere, which is already under stress from climate change and chemicals and so forth? We know that alien species introduced into the biosphere, or into, into different parts of the biosphere, are uh, the second worst uh, cause of species extinction. Which finally brings me to uh, third, and I think the biggest mistake that this field is, is committing. And that's that it's adopting an extremely destructive business plan. actually, Drew has touched on this. Um, So far, as far as I can see, the synthetic biology business plan is make a microbe that turns sugar into something, usually biofuels, maybe chemicals. And this is often expressed as the so-called bioeconomy, which is going to replace petroleum with sugar, Um, whether it's food sugars, such as corn or cane. But we know that's a bad idea from from ethanol, that if you use food sugars, you're going to be displacing food, and that pushes up prices and pushes people into hunger. Or, more usually, the suggestion is long-term, it's going to be cellulose. That's to say, the woody part of our plants. And I think accessing that woody part of our plants is, uh, is a very dangerous move. We're going to see a massive corporate grab on plant biomass in the coming years, facilitated by synthetic biology. And, uh, and I'd really like to talk more about how significant that is. So here's the difference between Drew and I. We actually share a lot of values, and we do talk from time to time. But Drew basically advocates for the uh, fastest possible diffusion of these synthetic biology tools, and I basically am in favor of a deliberate containment policy. Um, To offer a basket of mixed metaphors, I think we should be slamming on the brakes, certainly on commercialization, that we should be locking this up in the lab until we really understand it, that we should be divorcing the science from the commercial world, that's a disaster, um, and that we should be very carefully looking before we leap. And we need to be doing all of these things right now because a very powerful commercial synthetic life industry is coming into being right now. And the window for polite debates like this is rapidly closing. Thank you. Right.
2: Thank you. Well, that's okay. terrific. <laughs> um, many questions. Uh, to start, I'm not sure this is the right question, so that's as a, a preface the first one. Is there some way you think practically to protect nature? So you talked about the use of these tools by commercial agents to get access to the remaining three quarters of the biomass that's not now a commodity, if you will. Mm-hmm. Is, is there some practical way, from your perspective, to, to protect what's still not a commodity? And is it only linked to decoupling the technology development from industry and commercialization? Well, that's
0: part of it. I mean, I think, um, yeah, so, so as you say, 24% of plant biomass is currently used by our civilization. That leaves about... Was that, 76% or so, ready to be commercialized once we we have a way of commercializing it and commodifying it. Um, And so, you know, a very straightforward way is just not to develop those tools, not to develop the tools that turn cellulose into a usable sugar to make plastics and biofuels. That's that lance that stays with the technologists. Uh, For um, the world's governments to enact very strong... um, treaties. We have the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is, exists for the sustainable use and conservation of biodiversity. That's a place that should be making a very uh, clear statement that that those, I think the key point here is that um, the, the, those synthetic biologists and others who say that, you know, we have this available cellulose, whether it's uh, leftover corn stalks or it's wood in forests, make the sense, give the sense, and it's a lie, that this is somehow available. Um, The corn stalks that are left behind on the field are exactly what you need to build the soil so that you can grow the food the next generation. Um, That's not available at all. It's not available, and it shouldn't be made available. And to steal it is to destroy the soil. And if we destroy the soil, as Franklin Roosevelt, the nation said, the nation that destroys the soil destroys itself. It's absolutely right. In the forests, the idea is the forests are somehow storehouses of carbon and sugar that we can just access when we want. It's not true. They're vast, vast um, ecosystems that clean our water and clean our air. And we need to absolutely protect and defend those.
2: And the means for doing that are at the level of the tools development and their commercialization?
0: Uh, part of it, I think that I, I see, uh, you know, if you want to create social change, there's, there's two things. One is that you have to have social organizing. And that's, that's legal and uh, political organizing and social organizing. The other is you need to prevent encroaching threats. And what I see is what's developing in synthetic biology are encroaching threats, threats to, to the, the, the cellulose locked up in all those forests. And I want to disable those threats.
2: You mentioned that Jay Kiesling's project on the East Bay involved taking a microbe in a vat and making artemisinin for treating malaria. Is it ever okay to make something in a vat filled
0: with microbes? And how would you decide if it's okay? Yeah. And Yeah, yeah beer is a great thing to make in a vat. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I believe Amaris started by making beer and I think they should have just stopped at that point um, with their recent, their, their recent plant over in Emeryville. Um, I think the question here is, and it's a general question for technology, if you're, if you're going to develop a technology that impacts people on the other side of the world, they have to have a say in the development of that technology. Um, what this means is we need to have much more reflective and um, uh, participative methods of assessing our technologies very, very early on so we can identify who's going to be impacted and we can bring them into the discussion. The problem here is a justice problem that amorous Biotechnologies and and whoever's invested in them is about to make a killing, maybe literally, um, off of something that's going to undercut the livelihoods of thousands of people in East Africa. And uh, we need a process, and this is a bigger technology question, we need a process by which that can be flagged up and and there can be some sort of intervention. Given that that work was sponsored by the Gates Foundation,
2: do you find that surprising or ironic? Uh, It's
0: not entirely surprising that uh, that a large monopoly that tries to move into the area of development also ends up replicating its problems in the area of development. Um, But uh, I think it's definitely worrying. Uh, My understanding from talking with... uh, with Jay was that they were actually told that, that uh, they, should, they should move on to make another business. And so that's what made them move into biofuels, which is the second problem. Um, we have a, a lack of uh, governance over large, powerful um, foundations as well, and we need to control that. So when computers, some of the modern computers were
2: first built by, by von Neumann and his team in the 1950s, those were commissioned to design hydrogen bombs and so on. And today, we live in a world where, going through a transition about a generation ago, uh, people got basically fed up with limited access to computers and started making their own. Do you see any possible path around uh, a biotechnology that might not be into militarization, um, even if nation-states go bad or
0: rogue or what have you? Or, yeah. Um... Or is that, is that really inevitable? You know, I think think if there's a a technology which um, a state can use um, for its own interests or a powerful entity, whether it's a corporation or whatever can use, there's a pretty good chance it's going to get used. Um, So I'm I'm reasonably pessimistic, I think. Um, If this technology is going to be developed uh, in a way that's um, very deliberate, then that deliberateness has to try and... uh, Reduce the ability for it to get into the hands of overly powerful players. We live in an unjust world, and if we're introducing a powerful technology into an unjust world, we're going to probably exacerbate that injustice, unless we're very, very deliberate in trying to to, um, attack that injustice. Mm -hmm. I don't see that happening now. I don't see that happening, and I'm not quite sure how it would happen.
2: If you could... uh Draft part of the biobrick public license. Mm-hmm. Is there a term or a clause or a condition beyond just you're free to use it that you'd like to see hard-coded in there? Yeah, plenty. Um, what, would be your, what would be your top three? <laughs> um, my top three?
0: My, I, I, would, uh, I, I would put two lines that shouldn't be crossed. So, and if they are crossed, i have a further one. Um, the first line is that there should be no release into the biosphere of anything produced using these parts. And uh, that would keep it locked up in the lab. And if it ends up released into the biosphere, um, we need to be there needs to be a, a legal mechanism to, to, to come back on that. That needs to be a crime. Uh, civil law, maybe. You know, okay. it's ability to try and get some sort of liability. Mm-hmm. Um, the second would be that these uh, these parts shouldn't be commercialised. Um, that this is for if it's this truly for understanding how nature works, um, which I think is a, a genuinely good reason to do synthetic biology, there's no need to release them into the biosphere as a sort of uncontrolled experiment. So that would be a second one. Um, and then I think there's you know, a question of, okay, if there's an overwhelming need, maybe, this comes to your question earlier, if there's an overwhelming need uh, to, to cross one of those lines, to release into the environment or to, uh, to commercialize this technology, then there needs to be a very transparent and participative process for assessing the technology where uh, communities beyond the synthetic biologists, particularly marginalized communities who will be affected, get to have a say over whether this moves ahead. I'm not ruling out there might be some use somewhere in the future, which, which everybody agrees to. But I think that has to be done deliberately and with vigilance.
2: Do you think there's any role for civil society organizations to play in the development of the technology so that they can better uh, constrain or guide their deployment, or lack thereof?
0: Yeah, um, Civil society organizations tend to, um, you know, it's a, it's a wide basket of groups, um, but they, they network across uh, many different communities and can bring different types of knowledge to assessing technologies. Um, so I think there's a very powerful role for not just civil society communities and social movements, but also um, indigenous peoples communities and, and other groups to, uh, to bring perspectives and knowledge on which technologies Uh, we feel more comfortable with and to have some kind of participative assessment. Um, So in the role of assessment, certainly. Uh, One last question.
2: Uh, A lot of times, uh, as technologies have been developed and it becomes easier to make stuff, you can see uh, an increase in diversity. Uh, Could you foresee a future where humans, by their ability to make or change living organisms contribute to biological diversity in a way that's
0: constructive or could be celebrated? So, um, you know, we, you know this, we, we brought Drew to the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity and I think you know, part of your argument there was, you know, we'll make biological diversity. Isn't that a great idea? Um, I, I think I find that uh, unlikely. The, the experiences I think I mentioned of uh, introducing new species into, into an environment is usually that they reduce biological diversity. Um, and uh, my worry is that's what's going to happen. I think you know I'm not the only person to say that. Freeman Dyson has written a really interesting essay in which he suggests that you know if we start producing large quantities of uh, of, of new engineered organisms by amateurs, we're probably going to lose a lot of the species um, that we already have. He seems fine with that. I'm pretty uncomfortable with it.
2: Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks. To summarize, Jim. Um, notes that there is a lag to the understanding uh, that humans have sort of consequences uh, of of developing new technologies. And you mentioned that uh, Pat Mooney said it it might be a human generation, 30 years or so, but you actually thought it was longer, 70 years or 100 years. And so uh, from that uh, opening, you uh, submitted for our consideration argued that the policy of the long path leading to a precaution In uh, considering and bringing forward new technologies is paramount. You used synthetic chemistry as a parallel and and highlighted many different aspects that that seemed to be parallel, uh, perhaps with synthetic biology. Noting, for example, the work of Perkin in 1856, developing a dye in England, and then seeing that readily and rapidly commercialized by the French and others. And this rapid industrialization, perhaps at the time, was, if I understood correctly, coupled to open patent frameworks. But then that was sort of subject to the tides of the time or, or the decades and rolled back at various points, leading eventually, uh, but also somewhat quickly, to what you'd call a concentration of power. This concentration of power then leads to misapplication, uh, many horrible things that we're aware of with chemicals being misapplied back in World War I and World War II and even more recently. The economic impact of the development of chemicals, also synthetic biology and chemicals produced via biology, um, oftentimes contributes to disenfranchisement, impoverishment uh, of people who are not represented in the process of the development or the deployment, commercialization of the technology. Further along in the development of synthetic chemistry, you noted uh, Rachel Carlson's experience and the generations leading up to that and what we inherit around the impact of synthetic chemicals on the environment, on humans, drawing back the curtain on basically uncontrolled experiments. Uh, I I think you might have noted that biology is at least as serious as chemistry might have been, if for no other reason uh, that the things that we're constructing can reproduce themselves, whereas oftentimes chemicals, they get made once and they go hopefully they get diluted or destroyed so um in summary around this part of your 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 remarks you you came back to again the idea of precaution as a principle in the development of this new technology Uh, you noted that uh, the conversation seems quite likely to move beyond microbes quickly Uh, so if it's microbes today it's plants tomorrow and technically i would agree with that Uh, You thought that this was not like genetic engineering. It might be an outgrowth of genetic engineering from the tools perspective, but in terms of the regulatory framework, it's a whole different beast and that uh, new approaches are needed. Uh, If, for example, you're compiling an entire organism from scratch and there's nothing to compare it to, then what do we compare it to? How do we know if it's safe? Does that challenge our biosafety framework in some way? you noted that uh, there might likely be a massive increase of organisms released into the biosphere. And if most new things coming into the biosphere, if anything's successful and takes over, it's likely to have a traumatic effect on the rest of things and lead to a loss of diversity. In particular, you noted uh, a, a, a problem, a mistake of vulnerability associated with uh, a further commodification of sugar, uh, sugar plus cellulose. Uh, and how this provides access to all of the, the, the natural living world in a way that just simply hasn't been true before, that this could lead to further concentrations of power, uh, you know, drawing on some remarks I, I, I remember from Hong Kong, uh, increases in landless peasants in Brazil, for example, and so forth. So, um, to summarize, uh, you concluded by uh, arguing for slamming on the brakes that uh, we lock the technology of synthetic biology into the laboratories, we decouple the industrialization, the commercialization of the technology from the laboratory work, and that we go forward uh, with care, great care.
0: One more thing. Um, I did note that the notion that you could, uh, you could develop a viable commercial industry and uh, not expect it to be militarized was a fairy tale. And uh, I think that's important that states will will uh, press a commercial industry into wartime use. And I think that should that should be in mind. Otherwise, yeah, you got it. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you guys. <clears throat> well done. Great. Do we have any more waters up here? Yeah, I could use some too. Thanks. Ah. Paul Ehrlich pointed out this is actually gin, and the talk gets better as <laughs> even goes by. The, um, sort of the question I have, Drew, and you can look over his shoulder, Jim. You've seen a number of things come into the iGEM jamborees. Uh, kids on the loose, insanely creative, uh, grabbing your biobricks and running off in weird directions with them. And as you see these things coming in, Have any of them entered a category that makes you nervous, Uh, and if so, why? And you probably know some things that are in a category that would make Jim nervous, and why do they not make you nervous? So, some cases for my jam, I think, is what I'm looking for here. I'll start. Sorry, explain what the jamborees are.
2: Stuart noted in his opening remarks that when he was at Stanford, there was not a department of bioengineering. And uh, when I moved to MIT back in January of 2002, there was not a department of biological engineering. And one of the things I was involved with uh, with good colleagues there was to get that started. And we graduated our first class of of students last June. Um, The students... Uh, desires coming in to research university and seeing biology not as a science only but as a technology include learning how to design and build living organisms, write DNA programs that work and so on. Uh, We don't know really how to teach them how to do that and what I showed today uh, in terms of technical substance is really state of the art, sometimes controversial as far as technology itself is concerned, meaning is this really going to work or not Um, The students are helping us figure out how to take this forward. And so iGEM, the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition, you can think of it as a genetic engineering Olympics for undergraduates. Uh, This started as a class of 16 students at MIT back in 2003. It's grown by a factor of about two every year. So we just had an end-of-competition jamboree uh, a weekend or two weekends ago at MIT with about 850 students from all over the world. I've not been concerned uh, uh, via uh, an iGEM project. Uh, we ask our students in iGEM to uh, by themselves assess the safety issues associated with their project and so if I were to start with safety, uh, that one is uh, creatively addressed. Um, the students also have to note if there's anybody local who uh, is concerned with issues of safety officially uh, at their institutions and so iGEM itself exists within a very strong institutional oversight framework. Uh, derived from the experiences with recombinant DNA. It's not been perfect, but it's worked okay. I have had one example of a project which did concern me. It was a sophomore, not part of iGEM, but in a laboratory course, and she decided that uh, it was a a shame, if you will, if not worse, that people who had wrinkles had to go uh, for repeated injections at the plastic surgeon's office of a, a bacterial toxin, Botox, and wouldn't it be better if you could have a skin cream that was a living skin cream that would make small amounts of this toxin on your face? Um, and so she set off to design that, and uh, we thought that was a bad idea and had a, a
1: conversation Do
0: you think about it's that. A bad idea. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. And it points: to, <laughs> <laughs> And it points to, you know, that this is going to move into human enhancement, and that's going to be a discussion. Um, but I would actually go back to something that Drew just said, which is when Drew and I first met. Well, we didn't even meet actually. Uh, It was because the uh, the synthetic biology community had decided they were going to pass a resolution at Synthetic Biology 2.0, their large conference here in the Bay Area, um, that they wanted uh, self-regulation, voluntary oversight, and self-regulation of their own field. Um, On that, worried many of us in civil society very strongly, um, because you know I'd say the inventor of uh, to quote Plato, the inventor of an art is not the best one to consider the the risks and benefits that might accrue from it. They're a little bit biased. Um, And uh, it slightly worries me that the safety framework and assessment framework for iGEM is the students themselves determine if there's any safety issues. That shouldn't be the way the field goes ahead. There needs to be an external way of doing it. It's
2: combined with community oversight. Many of the community oversight boards include not just researchers but members of the public. It is imperfect, and it's different all over the world. And so iGEM provides a way of promulgating a framework much faster than a government might. Uh, But otherwise, you know, very much in agreement. Uh,
1: I've got a question for you, Jim, from Thurston. Where's Thurston? Would the first vat of beer have passed the precautionary principle (laughs) (laughs) test? And actually add to that the first vat of uh, human insulin that was created by genetically
0: engineered uh, bacteria. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, one, of the, one of the issues that, uh, to directly answer your question, I don't know. Um, with the case of beer, I, I think if somebody had consumed that beer, they probably would have uh, decided it wasn't a very cautionary thing to move ahead with. And, um, the, the, one of the things, I think, that worries me about the development of synthetic biology and many of our... our um, uh, Our technology at the moment is is the speed, which is what Drew pointed to. We're we're developing at a speed where there isn't any reflection, there isn't any space for reflection, because they can then, through commercialization, also get deployed at a scale where we can't draw back. Um, Now, in the case of fire, which isn't, you know, kind of already existed and you could observe it in the natural world, I guess, um, uh, nonetheless, you know, if, if you're developing it over a long period of time, many of our early technologies would have been developed over thousands of years. Um, at a scale where we can pull back, that's a kind of precautionary framework of its own. Um, as for insulin, um, yeah, that's, I think there's still that's an interesting debate. Um, and and you know, I wonder
2: if some folks would consider that to be a, a, a sort of necessary rea- reaction to to diet, if you will. Um, in part, that's not completely fair. But I, just to support Jim a little bit, you know, there are things that are impressive about. Biology is a technology. You have reproducing machines, really. Uh, And we depend on biology utterly, which everybody's well aware. And so it's not like you could reformat the hard drive. Our knowledge base is nowhere near being able to do that. Uh, So the consequences of screwing something up seem uh, much more serious than we might be familiar with regarding beer or fire even.
1: Saul Griffiths is here. So this is, I think question is mainly uh, for you, Drew. What is the best testing methodology for SynBio, best being safest? And he adds, can abstraction really exist without perfect compilers? And, therefore, are imperfect compilers, which we have, a risk? And he asks a question I don't understand, which you might. How about uh, combina- combinatorics being considered obvious in IP Uh, An answer would help elsewhere. uh, Hi, Saul. Where is (laughs) Saul? Where are you, Saul?
2: Okay, okay. Well, perfect compilers, in terms of being able to build DNA, maybe we can get better at that, and if not perfect, pretty good, good enough. Um, Combinatorics being obvious, Uh, I I think what Saul's referring to there is the idea if you put two things together in combination and get some useful invention therefrom, uh, it's obvious, right? And if it's obvious and it can't be patented, would that the patent office uh, followed that prescription, uh, which we simply don't see in practice in biotechnology. Um, What's the first part of Saul's question? I got so distracted. Um,
1: Well, the best methodology... Oh, uh, a yeah. testing methodology where best equals safest.
2: That's your words nope, or his him. words? Holy moly. Well, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't have a physics model for a cell is the way to think about it. You know, we, we have a decent physics model for planes. And so um, you can simulate wings and whatnot and do pretty good on a computer and then have a chance of flying the plane when you take it out on the runway for the first time. And, and because we don't have a physics model for life, either inside a cell or let alone the ecosystem. You don't see people forecasting evolution yet. Um, It's a real tricky question to answer, and the only way I know to test a biological system, forget about safety, but but just test it at all, is to build it, is to compile it to a physical object and see what it does. And so what that means practically is we need a very strong containment framework that addresses issues of safety which is what we have to a degree. And the biosafety framework based on containment has four levels, one, two, three, four.
1: Can you describe how the containment works a little bit?
2: Yeah, so biosafety level one would be something like the Coli project where folks are, are, are cutting and pasting DNA to reprogram the bouquet of a bacteria. This work, when it's done for the first time, should be done in a closed laboratory with individuals who have been through a biosafety process, the output of their research, whether it's dirty plates or flasks containing old bacteria, should be autoclaved or boiled or cooked so they're destroyed or bleached so that things are not wantonly leaving the laboratory environment. So that would be biosafety level one. It's meant to provide a minimal containment around uh, uh, some of the lowest risk, if you will, uh, genetic engineering work. Biosafety level four is the subject of thrillers, right? So... um, The hot zone or what have you, uh, pathogens for which there's no treatment or uh, cure uh, Ebola, other hemorrhagic fevers, and so on. Uh, These are secured facilities under negative pressure so that the air, if there's a leak, should flow in, and so on. Uh, Tremendous controversy around these facilities, both their development, staffing, siting. I think somebody noted at uh, a civil society teach-in last Thursday that one of the Biosafety Level 4 facilities was recently put on a barrier island on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, So uh, you can debate whether or not that's wise. Um, So that's the biosafety framework, and and if you go online, you can get a lot of information about it. What should uh, amateurs do about biosafety? I think we we have to uh, create something new in our society that might be akin to what you've seen with amateur radio combined with the homebrew computer club, combined with something else. I'm not quite sure what that is, but folks are basically gonna have to, if they wanna participate in this research in their garage, if they wanna do garage biotech, they have two options. One option is to do a lot of work on their laptop, right? To do the design work at the DNA level as information and ship that information over the internet to laboratories which are already safely established to compile and test. So that would be one option. Another option would be to provide a minimal uh, 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 assessed, approved um, uh, BL1 facility in your garage, which would be possible to do.
1: That's basically a hood and things like that, or what?
2: You'd have to limit access to the facility. You'd have to demonstrate that you were uh, practicing good microbial safety so you weren't releasing things into the trash. You'd have to destroy all of the organisms before you disposed of them, and so on. And by organisms, I'm talking about bacteria, or yeast, or so on.
1: So this is part of how you report to the homebrew computer, the homebrew biotech club that you're part of, that you're doing all these things.
2: And one would wonder whether it needed stronger oversight, right? So if, you have a, if you're an amateur radio off, uh, operator, you actually have to, have to get a license, right? Maybe you want something akin to that.
0: Jim, what do you think about well, that? Well, I mean, for a start, these aren't computers or radio. Um, they're talking about living things, and, and we know that living things escape from labs all the time. Um, so I... I so what, what do you mean by that? What, oh There's, you know, there are regular incidences of uh, genetically modified organisms escaping from university labs. It happens all the time. Um, but what worries me, actually, is the area that I'm more worried about are the commercial facilities. So, you know, Amaris Biotech has just set up a, um, a biorefinery in Emeryville. They're also setting one up in the Brazilian uh, countryside. Um, this is, roughly speaking, a, a, a brewery. Um, I don't think that's biosafety level one, two, three, or... 0.5 um, yeah where are the where are the controls on, on commercialization and, and what are the things we're probably going to miss in that process so
2: we could talk about that right and I guess we'd have to also bring into it the open fermenters in in Europe around you know uh, brewing beer mm-hmm. um, I, I'd have to assume and would like to go ask the people at Amaris what sort of uh, biosafety review Emeryville Ask them to do, right? Is there a risk associated with yeast
0: that produce diesel fuel? Mm-hmm. And if so, what is it? And does it somehow persist? Do we know it definitely doesn't persist into the fuel? I mean, those kind of questions.
2: By persist, do you mean the organism? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, related to this question from Kevin Hart. Right
1: over there. Mm-hmm. Is it even possible to regulate synthetic biology? Isn't Pandora's box already open? And if so, that not open source the best defense? Um, you said the window is closing fast. This question says maybe
0: the window is uh, closed. gone. Um, I, I hope that the window is closing. Um, you can pretty much count on, all my fingers and maybe Drew's, the companies that call themselves synthetic biology companies. Um, you can probably, if you had a... Uh, a uh, worked very hard at it, kind of identify all the people who use synthetic biology techniques. You probably know a large number of them. It's still something that uh, could still be uh, contained as as an enterprise. And so if we wanted to contain this in a laboratory and prevent commercialization, society could choose to do this. Um, I I, I agree that with the price of DNA synthesis going down and uh, the ease with which you can buy a DNA synthesizer on eBay, that's uh, rapidly
2: the last time I knew everybody in the synthetic biology community was in 2005 or 2006. Um, with the 850 students showing up at the iGEM jamboree this year, it was all I could do to coordinate the judging of that event. I don't know everybody individually, um, and so that's uh, that's just the state of affairs. Uh, it is a distributed technology. It is relatively cheap. And, uh, you know, I wonder, uh, back to something you said around uh, concentration of power in large commercial actors, my sense is, you know, if we keep coming back to Amherst, that's actually a small company. That's 200 people. Um, You could do a lot with a team of 12 people in this space. Uh, And so whether it's out of the box or in the box, I'm not even sure there's a box left, um, would be one way to think about it. I'd I'd like to come back uh, to if I could, to something Jim said. Uh, I think this is a situation where the tools and the technology and its deployment are likely to continue to change. They'll be changing quickly, but they seem likely to change for a while. And I wonder if we disagree about this or not, because I know you're really concerned about scale up and and the threats to many uh, different parts of the world derived from this. But but be my hope that we could put in place a robust framework supporting discussion and perhaps partnership on topics. And uh, do you think that's possible or do you think that some of these issues around cellulosic biofuels or other things are gonna trigger uh, such powerful responses uh, from the civil society community, if you will, that that we really only have a very, very small window of time and, and won't be able to do anything beyond that?
0: So my sense is that uh, well, what I see coming from civil society um, is that there's not a, a rational process of saying, uh, that not that everyone ever necessarily is, uh, here's an emerging technology, we need to make sure that we have a sensible discussion around it before we move it into society, and here's the process by which we're going to do it, and then we'll decide how to move it into society, which would be a sensible way to go about it. Um, instead, we have, here's a powerful technology, we're going to diffuse it as widely as possible, and wouldn't it be great to have a discussion once it's out there? Um, and uh, that's, that's entirely the wrong way around. And, the, the, the red flags for us are seeing BP partnering with Synthetic Genomics, Chevron partnering with Solazime, um, uh the largest sugar manufacturer in Brazil partnering with Amaris, um, that this is uh, no longer being driven by those 850 people who came to the iGEM competition. It's being driven by people in the boardrooms of some of the most powerful corporations on the planet. And, uh, and that's, that's the worry. There's no interest in discussion for those people.
1: Jim, it strikes me there's more discussion going on as this technology is being developed than most. Uh, cell phones weren't really discussed no. until they were suddenly in our hand uh, changing our lives. Uh, birth control pills weren't really discussed until they were out there changing the way humans behave. Um, genetic engineering and food crops wasn't discussed much until we, they were out yeah. there to be dealt with. So compared to those, at least this seems like no. Indeed, that's not discussion then technology, but at least the discussion and the technology
0: seem to be emerging somewhat in parallel. Is that is yeah, you, so? My experience, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm mostly watching this. I'm watching this technology for the last two or three years. Is that that isn't there? Isn't much of a discussion around it? And this is a great. This is great that there's beginning to be one here. It's true, um, actually. And uh, you know, quite frankly, I want to f- flip that round so that we're not chasing and trying to catch up with our technologies, our technologies are waiting for our discussions. That would be a sane way to deal with innovation because this isn't just about synthetic biology. It's about all the different converging technologies that are also happening at the same time and that we're, we're being uh, beginning to feel a bit inundated with rather powerful, disruptive technologies. Well, This, is, this sort of raises a point
1: that one hears from various places, which is biotechnology is zooming ahead right down at the 100 nanometer scale. Information technology is zooming ahead at Moore's law pace at the nano, uh, nanometer, 100 nanometer scale. And uh, nanotechnology, such as it is, is uh, zooming along, somewhat coattailing on biotech, but could go ahead at some point. They're all accelerating each other. Each one of them is autocatalytic, accelerating itself. In combination, they seem to be accelerating each other. Uh, how does that play out in all this? I mean, you, you're basically talking about programming organisms. So this is already an information technology story.
2: Yeah, if you understand DNA sequencing and DNA synthesis technology, the most significant thing to take away from those two in partnership is it makes genetic material and genetic information interconvertible. Right. Right. So you can imagine a future where you have the iTunes equivalent.
1: So right? it's not bits to atoms anymore. It's bits to right. basically cells. So,
2: so um, there's two things I'm freaked out about. One is uh, how do we pay for this? And by pay for this I mean energy and. With Saul here, come back for his talk in January. Uh, Saul Griffith and the Long Now talk. Then, I think we're going to run into a big constraint there. And uh, uh, you know, sure, these things might all be moving along, info, nano, bio, uh, but if we can't afford the energy to drive it, uh, we're not going anywhere. Uh, the second thing that I'm freaked out about, uh, if you if you really grok uh, this this technology, uh, basically what it lets you do is is, is change how nature propagates over time. And this is something uh, to think about over centuries and millennia. Uh, right now, all of life is one generation to the next. And it's constrained by a very powerful process that includes uh, replication with error. So sort of direct descent from one organism to the next, to your parents, to your children, to yourselves, to your children, and so on. So direct descent and replication with error provide huge constraints, I suspect, on the architecture of living systems. If we can sequence an organism, figure it out, change it, recompile it back down, we basically have a new alternate path forward in time for propagating life, where this intermediate step requires us to take direct responsibility for it. And what we've seen with genetic engineering, what we're seeing with Synthetic biology is the beginnings of, of the very... They sound like big conversations now, but I, I suspect they're very small beginnings to a much bigger conversation having to do with how do we take direct responsibility for the intentional manipulation or editing or engineering, choose the word you like, of genetic material, and can we do that? So, so I'll, I'll believe in the singularity when somebody explains to me how we can, how we can pay for it with energy, don't see it, um,
1: you want all these organisms signed?
2: Yeah. How does that work? You sign them. You write down your name in DNA, print it, there it is. And, so if and, it and goes out
1: there and does bad things, uh, one will know where it came from and go nail them like the, the anthrax uh, track down.
2: Well, that had its own issues, but the, the signing of something into DNA needs to be complemented with another thing, which is the publishing of that sequence information in a different form right, onto a, a website. Right. So if I have a DNA signature and I'm signing on my DNA, da 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 da, you could spoof my signature and then I'll get in trouble right, right for, for what came out. So I need to not only sign my DNA, but then I need to make public. I need to disclose everything I'm engineering, everything I'm making.
0: I'd Is like to. Is there watermark
1: equivalents that you can get a sure. DNA?
0: Sure. Oh. I mean there's a third part to that. You also need a liability regime so that if something goes wrong or you're responsible for something, people can come back and uh, yeah. and finger you for it.
2: My sense is that's probably there already, but I don't know. But, you know, maybe... maybe.
0: Yeah, there's been yeah. a very strong move, particularly by the U.S. government, to, to forestall that around genetically modified organisms, yeah. and my sense is the industry will do its best well, to... Well, we could uh,
2: probably put it in for hit. genetically engineered organisms.
0: to yeah. yeah. me there's
1: one player that not, that's not here, and we should have a, somebody from Amherst, somebody who's, who's basically taking a commercial viewpoint on synthetic mm-hmm. biology. Because in... Very interesting way you seem to be supporting his open source approach to this technology. Now, that has an interesting history because with genetic engineering in food crops, which you've been paying attention to, and et cetera, has been paying attention to, Greenpeace has been paying attention to. One of the reasons that domain became somewhat contained is because it got so commercialized so very early, and patents got locked up, and the, uh, the Monsantos and Syngentus and so on became very supportive of strong regulations because that would help keep the riffraff competition out of the game, which it did. And it sort of locked up the technology. There's really only two major versions of genetically modified food crops out there, one for pests, you know, pesticide and another one and basically an herbicide. And they're making millions. Uh, and it's the most controllable version of biotech that we've had. Uh, there has been no military application. I know of yet, and it seems like somebody who wants to keep a lid on these technologies would say, commercialize it fast, put in as few corporations as possible, uh, lock up the IP, slow everything down, and then we can
0: figure out what's going on. Well, I mean, just to go to the GMO example, you can say that it's slowed down. It hasn't really done much. You've only had a couple of different varieties that have ever gotten anywhere. It's been a very unsuccessful experiment and a very expensive one. This is probably the first year that the biotech industry has made any kind of profit after, what, 30 years? Um, that said... It's also been tremendously successful. When when, uh, Monsanto and Syngenta, which was then Siva and Sandoz, started getting into um, the the GMO business and buying up seed companies, there were thousands of small seed companies. There was a a very diverse agricultural market. And uh, and a lot of the breeding was being done by by public institutions. What they were able to do by deploying uh, GMOs was, was... concentrate that so we now have basically four or five companies that control almost the entire seed industry and the pesticide industry and the fertilizer industry, get control over the market, and manage to convince the public breeders that they had no place really in developing this technology because it was too costly and too expensive, and so they got out of developing plants. And so as a result, those companies like Monsanto or Syngenta can pretty much walk away from GMOs, having succeeded exactly what they wanted to get, domination of the marketplace and domination over the entire food chain. So, technologically, you're right, it wasn't a great success. In terms of power and commerce, it was a tremendous success. And I think that's what we're going to see here with synthetic biology. Whether or not it works or not, um, if this is the strategy by which a few large players gain control over that 76% of the world's biomass, and you know, there might only be one or two applications, and they're probably going to be in fuels and plastics and chemicals, um, if they nonetheless can modify all of that which is currently outside of the commercial system, um, then it's a great success for them what lessons do you
1: draw from the genetic engineering and food crops experience?
2: I think that the rollout of stuff into the environment needs to be, to come back to what we were just talking about, uh, more vigorous disclosure of what's happening. I find it to be amazing, growing up in this world, that it's very difficult to pay attention, to know of the experiments, to know of the data, to figure out, if some of the things I hear are fantasies or true or what have you. Uh, So I'd like to see from that past experience a recognition that we could do a lot better. And in part, I think some of the tools we've got would help with that. I think it's interesting to see the back and forth between the commercial commercial efforts and the civil society organizations and how that's led to a collapse of dialogue, practically. And uh, I find myself sitting here uh, celebrating a remarkable event, but having it be a one-off in my experience, and wondering why I grow up in a vacuum of dialogue around these issues.
0: If I could come back to that, I mean, yeah. you, you just said, you know, who's missing here is Amoris or the commercial companies. But actually, also who's missing here is who's going to be impacted. It's the uh, it's the farmers in, in East Africa. It's the uh, the the workers in in um, Brazil, who are going to grow the sugar cane for Amoris? All of those are missing. Um, if there's going to be a dialogue, it has to involve those people. And, you know, one proposal we could have is we could, you know, yourself, people from Amoris, those people from Brazil, we could we could meet up and we could travel around and visit some of those places where the impact's really going to be, and you know, we'll come back in a year's time and tell you what we think. Uh, I like the road trip proposal. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'd love to see. You know, get Jim and some people from Greenpeace at the bench uh, working with biobricks. Just get some experience with them. Come to the uh, Jim Jamboree see what they bring. (laughs) And what would you, bring? If you could fabricate in his world something cool that would be absolutely in line with what Etc. wants to have happen in the world, what would be the nifty... Well, a little synthetic biology tool you'd like to make.
0: Well, I'd fabricate a social technology. I don't think I'd fabricate biological technology. And it would be a social technology which uh, allows uh, large numbers of people from diverse viewpoints to, to collaboratively and participatively assess new technologies. And we could bring that to iGEM, and we could, we could you know, bring in different viewpoints from around the world from different knowledge systems to assess these, uh, these different gizmos. And Maybe you have a
1: different, uh, two sets of judges at yeah. the next iGEM. One is uh, the ones who are, you know, winning best environmental project, most of them, best presentation, all that kind of stuff. And then this other set of saying scariest <laughs> project, uh, most uh, potentially deleterious, most carelessly uh, contained.
2: So judging is a real challenge. If anybody here would like to help judge, please let me know. Um, <laughs> seriously. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to take a beautiful framework like that and then force people to use pejoratives in, 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 in the awards. So, yeah.
1: Okay, here's a... When you get two versions of a question, you know it's a real question. Both the Eliza, looks like Kooner, and Richard Lee had the same question. This is for Jim. I use Eliza's version. Putting an industry of people out of work could have been an argument against all technology, all machines, computers, etc. Why is biotechnology different? Or are you saying that all technology is bad for putting poor people out of jobs?
0: Well, it's not an argument against all technology because, uh, you know, there are, uh, techno- there are many technologies that have been, uh, that create work. Um, but um, certainly it's true that if you look back over the history of the last few waves of technology, you see a parallel where you know, we hear about those who, who ride the wave, who, who profit by it and so forth, but there's always usually the poor, the marginalized, who are, um, who are disrupted by the wave, who are upset by it. And I think that's a, that's a lesson from history that we should try and actively bring into how we assess technologies. The, the truth is we don't have any good framework for controlling the social impacts of innovation, and it's a big, huge uh, black hole that if there is a, a new chief technology officer uh, to be appointed by the next president, that's something they should think about putting in place. They kind of had it—the beginnings of it—with the office of technology assessment. Um, we probably need a people's office of technology assessment. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, there's a question
1: in a way for both of you. Probably start with Jim. Uh, it's David Harris. Here you do. Hey, hey, there he is. Uh, this is on safety. Doesn't horizontal gene transfer already create vast numbers of s- new species, quote, that are apparently harmless? And this is you know, this sort of the, the continuum between microbes who run the world. They make the atmosphere. They eat our food. They do all that stuff. And they're making new, new wildly different versions of themselves every... How often do they reproduce and change? Through?
2: Depends where they're living, 20 minutes to
1: much longer. 20 minutes to much longer. Um, so they're
0: releasing new species
1: into the biosphere all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, is that qualitatively different from what we're talking about here?
0: Um, so the assumption I think that underlies that question is that uh, that those species are somehow random or that, that you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the process by which, uh, by which microbial communities sort through those mutations. Um, and choose amongst those mutations which ones are are able to propagate and which ones disappear. I think it's probably a very complex process, and there are others microbial ecologists who could answer it far better. Um, What I do know is that when amorous biotechnology or Craig Venter or whoever decides that they make a new uh, genome, they then will um, mass produce large quantities of it, industrial-sized quantities of it, and and use that in an industrial setting. Um, That's not just one example of a new microbe coming in and having to interact with a whole microbial community, that's a sort of a brute force attack of that one single uh, species, if you want to use that word. And that's certainly the problem with GM crops, you know, that that, that question came up with GM crops, you know, well surely horizontal gene transfer occurs, what's the problem about transferring? Um, The difference is that Monsanto doesn't transfer it once in one seed, we could probably mitigate against that, it then replicates that over millions upon millions of hectares. So the question I have then is, do we have examples
1: from the 30 years of, you know, since recombinant DNA, of tailored organisms getting loose in the wild and um, doing whatever they do once they're out there?
0: I could respond a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and this isn't quite the, your question, but I think it's, it's germane. Um, you know, they're a very good experience of a genetically modified organism that that was stopped, luckily, but could have caused a real problem, was um, there was a a Klebsiella planticola, it's a bacterium, which uh, was modified uh, in order to turn wheat stalks into ethanol. Um, And the idea was this would be a way of using, exactly as being proposed now, um, cellulosic material and turn it into ethanol. Um, And uh, a, a very good soil microbiologist at the University of Oregon, Elaine Ingham, checked to see what would happen if that was released into the soil as slurry and waste and found that, of course, it would have turned uh, a lot of the material in the soil into ethanol, which would have killed off the soil. Now, that was stopped. Um, But this is exactly the sort of things that we're seeing proposed with synthetic biology. We're looking at microbes that will turn cellulosic material into gasoline or jet fuel or plastics. Um, So there's an example from genetic modification. But isn't the fact
2: that it was stopped an example of a successful safety framework?
0: Well, I think that was extremely lucky. It was was Elaine Ingham saw it and thought to check it. There aren't many. You usually don't do a screen against the effect on soil soil microbiology of new GM organisms. Well,
2: so fair enough. But it was stopped, Um, and there are many other things that can be done and are done to try and reduce the impact of the, if you say, unfair advantage an engineered organism has relative to its natural counterparts, which is that it can be amplified greatly and deployed in the environment at scale. It's interesting, and I think some of this certainly has to be validated in the laboratory first. It's interesting to think about what you can do with synthetic approaches. Uh, So if you're redesigning a genome, it's actually possible to recode the entire genetic table, uh, how DNA is read out into proteins, and it seems conceivable that you could invent a new genetic code for which every point mutation, every point mutation would be deleterious. Hmm. So that if your genetic code changed at all, it would stop the organism from continuing. You'd have what an engineer would call a fail-fast genetic code. Hmm. Um, This would require changing the genetic code from a triplet code to a quadruplet code and so on. I mean, it's a huge set of modifications. If you look back at the history of genetic engineering, the conversation south of here at Asilomar, Uh, where they were thinking about recombinant DNA and biosafety, focused in part on how do we engineer the bacteria that we're engineering so that they themselves are safer. Mm -hmm. And it's not perfect. I'll grant you that. And there is a big amplifier associated with taking something out and releasing it. Another lesson from genetic modification, if you will, and the conversations around that is how safety and control are oftentimes coupled. So what was branded or labeled Terminator technology that controls... Uh, the propagation of a plant.
1: His organization named it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I'm giving him credit. Uh, you know, also uh, created a subscription dependency with respect to economic models, as I understand it, for access to the so-engineered seeds. Right. So, do you like it because it doesn't propagate, and maybe, you know, or, or are you upset about it because it forces people to continue paying fees every year? Um, you know, how do we how do we how do we balance stuff like that?
1: Here's a question for you, Drew. As I understand, you guys are up to intelligent design. You want to take this totally kludged apparatus that biology has brought us after 3.5 billion years of screwing around, and everything, you know, total kludge of patches and layers and moronic leftovers and pieces of virus that are just baggage at this point. You're going to take that, and I understand the term is refactor it into, you want to build it because it was so unworkable as a living mess that you want to build a workable non-mess. And this is a great Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein moment. Um, <laughs> that is, uh, I mean, you're not playing God. You're, playing, you're not playing nature either.
2: I'm an engineer. You're
1: playing an intelligent design god who we keep saying doesn't exist.
2: Well, so really intelligent design would have documentation, right? <laughs> and that, 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 that explains who I am.
1: And that's part of your goal, right?
2: Yeah. But it, it comes back to, to, you know, if you look at our first naive initial attempt at refactoring a genome, the modifications we made, and we made 600 of them at once, Uh, resulted in a a new organism encoding the same proteins as the natural isolate, but its ability to reproduce itself was knocked down by about 40% or 50%. Uh, So from an environmental perspective, it's much less fit. It only survives in our laboratory setting because we devote tremendous amounts of resources to keeping it in existence. We create an artificial selection, if you will. Uh, I could look forward to a day where we can refactor natural living organisms and we understand them and we know how to put the pieces back together and we don't lose the beauty and magic and fitness of life. Mm -hmm. But we're very far away from doing that.
1: There's one example that, that concerns me. I was trained as an ecologist, Jim, and frankly I'm not so worried about the genetically modified crops so far. But we've got climate change coming on. And adaptation has to occur in especially places in Africa and in the tropics generally um, are very fragile. And they are going to get drier and they're going to get saltier and they're going to get more floods. And so there's work, very good work now on flood-tolerant rice coming out of UC Davis, which is being field-tested now and working fabulously. There's going to be all sorts of drought-tolerant food plants, corn and sorghum and whatnot coming along. Ecological question there is usually food crops have no chance once they get over the fence into the jungle. It's a jungle out there, and their talents don't work. Uh, They only work in the special place where there's lots of water and all that. But if you make really good salt-tolerant and drought-tolerant plants, they're going to be dealing with an impoverished native population around them because most plants can't handle salt, They can't handle drought. And so do you think there's going to be an issue of this being a case where finally an engineered organism is actually better at being a version of the wild than the things that already live there? And should should we worry about
0: this? I I think it was useful what Drew showed in one of his pictures, the the image of uh, a corn, you know, which is an engineered plant. It's engineered by uh, thousands of generations of of Mexican campesinos, Mm -hmm. Um, and that in fact, Many of the, uh, these salt-tolerant, drought-tolerant, stress-resistant genes that are being so-called discovered at, at Davis and elsewhere, they're not, they're not being invented. They're, they're being found, actually, in mm-hmm. foods that have been developed over generations by farmers. Um, and, in fact, you know, farmers in, in, in the South, in the developing world, have a long history of, of developing varieties that resist change, climate change and other changes. Um, and they do this by having many different varieties and, and, and hedging against them. Um, and I think it's actually extremely uh, arrogant to think that UC Davis has come up with something that actually was really developed by the wisdom and knowledge of, of thousands of farmers beforehand. Um, what worries me and what we're seeing now is that those uh, climate genes or whatever um, uh, are being patented. You know, so BASF and Monsanto are putting literally thousands of patents. Some cars. are, some are Well, the rice one isn't. Well, that one might not be, but many are. And, and submarine patents that go across a, you know, a whole range of different crops. Um, and they will get deployed as monocultures um, uh, and as sort of silver bullet solutions to, to uh, whether it's Africa's problems or Southeast Asia, um, which will eradicate some of the more subtle and diverse breeding strategies that farmers left to their own devices um, would, would employ and that would work just as well. Um, and of course, and if they had their own biotechnology they labs do. locally, which they in many cases they do have be uh, their own biotechnology. They'll be making their own land years. races, yeah. right? But they do have their own biotechnology. It's been around for thousands of years, and these are breeding strategies, and they're very complex knowledge systems. Um, and I think then uh, there needs to be a, a recognition, um, certainly by those responsible for food and agriculture, um, that uh, those complex breeding systems by by indigenous and local communities are as as uh, as knowledge-based as as biotechnology or synthetic biology. So this strikes me as the major overlap, actually,
1: between you guys, is you both are very strong for empowering grassroots. And the difference is pace. Your technology is moving pretty quickly and you worry about the speed, is that right?
0: I'm worried, and I'm particularly worried, actually, about how it encroaches upon existing. Encroaches on? Existing grassroots technologies, such as breeding. We talked earlier, and I I proposed
1: that the precautionary principle, which has been, you know, Kevin Kelly has a different version. Uh, He and Max Moore want the proactionary principle, and there's, you know, a whole bunch of things out there. People are really upset about the precautionary principle because it seems to stop things and not take risk balancing seriously and so on. So my big proposal is uh, keep the precautionary principle and add the vigilance principle. The vigilance principle being eternal vigilance is the uh, price of liberty. Originally said about uh, defending against slavery, by an abolitionist in Boston over 100 years ago. And uh, it then focuses on what's actually happening in the world rather than what do we imagine bad things that might occur in the world. Because there's always an infinity of bad things that we can imagine, and a very limited number then of good things that we can imagine. Golden rice is going to keep kids from going blind. Uh, in large parts of the rice eating world. And then other people say, no, if they have that kind of rice, they won't eat their vegetables, or corporations will take it over, or they won't like it because it's golden instead of white. And you know, all these worries come up. And precaution says, we can imagine these worries, therefore, either don't do it, or let us control it, or do it very slowly. But a vigilance would say, okay, some's out there, probably. Uh, We need to know where it is, what it's doing, and do we care, and what are the surprises? What are the good surprises? Applause. Cell phones, empowered poor people all over the world. What are the bad surprises? And can they be corrected? Now, part of what I get from both of you having this grassroots approach is that this is empowering a lot of people to pay attention in a distributed way, like Wikipedia or something, to what's actually going on, and having the Knowledge that you would impart from the social-civil standpoint and you would impart from the engineering standpoint, that people know when things are good or bad, what's going on. They know how to find the signature in a piece of uh, peculiar DNA. Is that a way to also link the approach to both of you are taking? Sorry for the long riff here.
2: I I think that uh, you see a big challenge here. And it's a challenge in that there is this similarity around openness and networks. But it starts, uh, and I'll say this in the abstract, with an asymmetry. Meaning I'm in a a position where I'm enabling an open network and it's out of my control. I mean, it it is out of my control. There's no illusion I can have that I could tell everybody what the iGEM students are gonna do and that they're safe. I'm trying to promulgate best practice, and I'm building a constructive culture, and I'm trusting that most human beings are optimistic and constructive. Um, Jim, and and I hope I represent this fairly, uh, Jim represents a different open community, and he is a a node in the middle of that community, and he's here speaking for it, representing very diverse groups, uh, with great uh, wisdom and differences of opinions and practical experiences and concerns. And what we don't see, even with the rise of the cell phone and all sorts of microfinancing and what have you, is we don't see the, the, the thing that Jim represents, that open network, matched up to the network that is out of my control that I'm somehow biasing a snowball as it runs, <clears throat> and it starts to run. And, and so I think the challenge or the gap, if you will, between us is, is, is there a way via tools of communication, dialogue, decision-making, what have you, to map those two communities up or actually have them be one community? If we could solve that problem, that becomes pretty interesting. If we can't solve that problem, we default to lower energy, less interesting social solutions, cultural solutions,
0: societal solutions.
1: How would you do that, Jim?
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's, that's really nicely put. Um, and but there's also I th- the thing that comes to mind is there's also an asymmetry of power. Um, yes, you're enabling a number of people to create something that's out of control, but largely speaking, they're a very powerful section of the global community. Um, what I'm concerned about is uh, the section of the global community that uh, generally have less power, but who uh, are going to be impacted by any technological change, and this is going to be a very big one. Um, and the viewpoint that's likely to come from those with less power, who've, who've dealt with uh, being disenfranchised again and again, is: um, you stop, you stop exercising that power and privilege that you already have, and then we'll have a discussion. Um, and particularly if you're going to be releasing technologies that uh, you don't quite know how to recall, um, then that uh, th- that becomes a preconditioning for having that discussion and, and common way of working together. Does that make sense?
1: Question for you, Jim, while he's pondering that. I'm oh. trying to think if
2: I'm Barack Obama, and you're, you're trying to put terms and conditions on whether I would talk to Iran.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know.
0: I don't think Iran, Iran is low on power. <laughs> Jim, you're one of the very
1: few who's paying attention in the um, environmentalist world, which is a huge body of people by now. And there's a kind of a a general knowledge and framing of a lot of environmental groups about genetic engineering. But that's a pretty sleepy backwater (laughs) of biotech at this point. And um, it's focused kind of on the agroecology and so on, which is great because there's a lot of people learning agroecology and that's always good and learning about gene flow, et cetera, et cetera. There's not so many, as near as I can tell, you're the only one I'm aware of. I mean, you wrote this book, this sort of pamphlet, Extreme Genetic Engineering, to sort of make the connection for that crowd to understand that it's getting weirder out there, are they paying attention? Um, Should they pay attention? Should uh, they be going to the biotech labs and trying to find really uh, well-schooled biotech people who will take on this, putting the larger framework around all of this so that responsibility and accountability and transparency follows every step of the way? Um, Is that happening at all? Or or are you having a generational gap in the environmental movement?
0: What's going on? Um. It is happening a little bit, and it definitely needs to happen a lot more. Um, as I mentioned, uh, three or four years ago, there was an open letter which we wrote along with uh, 37 other organizations mm-hmm. calling for uh, the synthetic biology to move away from voluntary, organi- from voluntary oversight. So there are others taking, taking note, and that's probably increasing. We just had a meeting here in San Francisco where about 80 people from different groups were meeting to get up to speed on synthetic biology. Um, so it is changing. Um, in a way, it's not just the environmentalist community. The people who really need to be engaged with this are those who are looking at human rights, those who are looking at um, uh, development questions and, and, and the rights of farmers and those who are going to be impacted. And, uh, yeah, we, we, there's, a, there's definitely a, a lack of capacity to assess from those different points of view. Um, people have a lot of struggles. The world's going through a lot of challenges. And to, to look... 5, 10, 15 years in the future is really hard for those who are struggling for their lives. And that, I wonder if it's,
1: it's worth doing when you have gatherings like that, which are clearly really needed to get word around and a sense mm. of focus and so on. It, it sounds like based on what we've seen here, it'd be worth having one or two people from the world, from the, the synthetic biology world, uh, to take a day or two and come and listen and you know, hold forth. Uh, they're not going to dominate the rap because there'll be one out of 50 people or whatever it is, but it'd be nice to have them in the room. They may go away with their hair on fire. They may go away chastened. You know, one doesn't know. Likewise, when the uh, when the Synbio nerds assemble, I don't know if I, Jim, is the right place, but it does happen. There are conferences. you know, There's the, the Synbio conference every year now. What's it? Five years old? Four, four. years old? Yeah. Uh, are there people from Jim's world at those conferences?
0: Yeah, so I was there. You were there. <laughs> oh. And Drew was just at a civil society meeting we just had on synthetic biology. So that, that's the beginning of that discussion. So he was there, report
1: on, was he there the previous year? Yes.
2: At Zurich, yeah. Okay.
1: So there's now a bit of continuity, and you've seen these guys grow. <laughs> they probably doubled between those times, but they're still one of you. Yeah, and they have a lot more money in their
0: pocket. <laughs> I'm not quite pleased with it on the whole. What one
1: wants is the critics and questioners to be almost as knowledgeable or as knowledgeable or more knowledgeable than the practitioners of these things. Is that a hopeless cause?
2: I don't I don't think that's a fair way of framing a question. Okay. I think that uh, in all of my experiences with Jim and his colleagues uh there has been a symmetry of learning uh mm-hmm. that uh, there are lots of missteps and there's lots of misunderstandings but there are many interesting things being shared and you know to to think you know that in my own existence I've never been south of the equator right to consider the impact of what's happening around Uh, Sugar production and biofuels, and listen to representatives of indigenous populations from the Philippines or Brazil, or learn that there might be landless peasants in Brazil. And so, I mean, I'm just completely ignorant of that. And so, one would hope that the technologists, and I don't think technologists just work with wet stuff or computer stuff or 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 what have you, but you know, they're social technologists. Uh, You know, we can all learn from one another, and that's been my my limited but privileged experience.
1: Where in the world? Is this is synthetic biology moving quickly, clearly here in the US? Uh, is it happening in Europe? Is it happening in Asia and Africa, Middle East, Israel? Where is the action?
2: In my perspective, uh, the US is uh, farthest along. Europe, with all respect to great colleagues there, tends to spend a lot of time debating the definition of the field. Um, Uh, Asia is, in a way that's very different from the U.S., moving at a national level in different countries uh, in ways that I would recognize as being strategic, that Jim would recognize as being terrifying, uh, perhaps.
1: Um, China is moving quickly in genetic engineering food crops, I know. Are they doing the same in synthetic biology? I've heard reports, but I've not seen the output of those
2: uh, discussions. Mm -hmm. And what I've heard is, from a technologist's perspective, very impressive. How about India? Uh, Some representation
1: uh, with respect to iGEM, but I'm not well aware beyond that. And the students that you're seeing come from what backgrounds?
2: Anything, right? I think the, the, the thing that surprises me consistently around synthetic biology is is there is an attraction to biology both as a science to understand but also as a technology platform for building. If I think what happened around the generational transition in computing where all of a sudden you got people building their own computers, in part that was because the tools, the technical tools came in place but it was also because people were very excited about silicon based computing technology. My limited experience, biotechnology is way more cool. And so the students come from engineering, computer science, English, mathematics, you name it.
1: Cultural backgrounds?
2: They want to build stuff. Culture of construction.
1: I mean, I noticed, for example, uh, the group at this year's Jamboree who won the environmental project prize was uh, three students from Brown who came up with a, it looked like a cheap uh, bacterial test for toxins in the water. And uh, one lady was clearly Caucasian. And it looked, looked to me like the other two were maybe Indian or uh, Bangladeshi or, or anyway, South Asia. And as I look at the teams, it's a, it's a pretty rainbow group. But that's true of all the technologies these days.
2: I hope that's true. Uh... I, 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 I would rather look forward to the diversity that Jim represents here and, and seeing that matched up, right, and having something much more powerful
0: or improbable and beautiful come
2: out as a result. Yeah.
0: I'd just like to say I, I, I don't represent that diversity, and I'm really aware of that. One of the, I don't represent that diversity. I'm very aware of that. Um, I'm a white, male, well-educated, northern, you know, uh, elite, privileged person. Um, what needs to happen in discussions like this is to actually have those people speak for themselves and uh, that's what's missing.
1: uh, Let's end with a question from Kevin Kelly. It's aimed at Jim but it's aimed at both of you. What would your ideal synthetic biology system look like when it is mature, say in 100 years?
0: Closed in a laboratory um, with with no escapes into the biosphere and uh, entirely for the purpose of Understanding how the world works, not for trying to profit by it. So it's for
1: investigative science only, and it's only in the lab. Yes. So, if
2: an artificial malaria
0: cure, you're against it? I'd like to have the discussion with uh, with other with other groups about whether that's something we move forward. (laughs) No, no, th- th- there, is a, there is an artificial malaria cure that's been developed, um, which is the artemisinin project in, in that Amaris is developing. Um, however, the assumptions there that there isn't enough natural artemisinin available are entirely wrong. And uh, in the process, it's going to uh, undercut the existing market for natural artemisinin. So I don't want to make assumptions that these things exist in, in you know, that th- there's a context, and I want to make sure that context is fully investigated. I, I'd, I'd, want to, I'd want to have a, a really um, participative and uh, uh, thorough discussion. Yep. For 100 years? That's an interesting question. So, interesting question. Yeah. So <laughs> interesting question.
2: My, my 100 years out, uh, we've solved the biosecurity situation by practically taking emerging infectious diseases, whether they be natural or otherwise produced, off the table, uh, and that requires huge worldwide cooperation. We have sufficient prowess uh, with biological engineering that if somebody wanted to grow a tail, so that if you're soldering, you could hold the two wires and have a third thing (laughs) for the soldering iron. (laughs) Um.
1: Everybody wants a tail, that's (laughs) it. Feathers? I have some feathers. That would be temporary or permanent? Once you've got it, you've got it.
2: (laughs) At your discretion.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) How about 10 years? That's harder.
2: I think you know you could look at some of the trending technologies and one where there's uncertainty but least relative to others is construction of DNA. Uh, as of this month, we're a factor of 3,000 away from being able to construct uh, three gigabases of DNA, which is a human genome equivalent. Um, if you look at the pacing of the sequencing projects, that took six years to go from a bacteria to a human genome draft. I wonder where we'll be with respect to just printing pieces of DNA in ten years. Uh, it could be a very different world um, in terms of the parts and composition of the parts, and actually validating them and having them act like Legos—if that's even possible. All bets are off.
1: Ten years, Jim?
0: I, I go back to what I said for a hundred years. Um, I'm now—I'm th- thinking of what Kevin, uh, Kevin's challenge, which is really important—the um, the question of well, you know, if there is a uh, a cure which uh, which can be implemented surely you don't want to stop that. Um, I, I, I guess um, wh- I guess what I'm the reason I'm kicking back against that is I worry about the suggestion that the 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 answer to health problems is always technological, um, and uh, you know health is as much uh, socially determined as it is as, uh, by disease and so forth. Um, so I would want to be just sure that there isn't a better. Um, there isn't a better social response to overcoming a cure that couldn't be implemented more safely. Um, but if it was agreed that there isn't, then ma- maybe I would open up the open up the path.
1: Clearly, we're going to have a lot of discussion for the next 10 years, <laughs> the next 100 years on this. Thank you for joining this one.